0: Right from the So here's what's happening at Right from the Deep. Well, as always, thank you, first of all, to our patrons on Patreon. Patreon is a platform, and we keep mentioning this, <laughs> that enables creators to get paid. Um, it takes time and money to put these things together for you guys and pay for the hosting. So we just want to say thank you to our patrons on Patreon. You guys truly help make this podcast possible. And if you're wanting to find out more information about that, you can do that at patreon.com slash deep. and it's P-A-T-R-E-O-N
1: dot com slash right from the deep thanks so much to our october sponsor of the month tammy Partlow. yay tammy she's a writer and speaker at women's retreats and her book blood beneath the pines is a tale of prevailing justice set mostly in the deep south she's hard at work on book two of that series as well learn more about tammy at her website t-a-m-m-y-p-a-r-t-l-o-w dot com and I am going to be at the Florida Christian Writers
0: Conference in Leesburg, Florida. I am excited about this. It's October 20th through 24th, uh, 2021, so later this month, and I will be representing Wild Heart Books, and I'll be taking pitches and appointments for them. Also, I'm teaching a session called Did God Really Ask You to Write? I hope to see you guys there. Say hi
1: if you're there. We're so grateful for the sponsorship from the Novel Marketing Podcast with host Thomas Umstadt Jr. It's the longest-running book marketing podcast in the world. We know and trust Thomas, and his podcast is full of great information and advice, like Novel Marketing's Ten Commandments of Book Marketing, which we're going to be bringing you. Commandment number one is, Love thy reader as you love thy book this is the greatest commandment and the most foundational. If this is wrong, you cannot fix it with the other commandments. So if you want readers to care about your book, you need to care about readers. A lot
0: of new authors just fall in love with their books. They write the book they want to write regardless of what readers want. And then writers start trying to figure out how to find readers and make them want the book, which is backwards. So you got to care about your reader. It's not something you tack on at the end as, you know, promotion. It's what you need to do to start. You need to know your reader. You need to listen to your reader, and you need to serve your reader. Jesus told his disciples that the greatest among them would be those who are servants. So approach your writing out of love and with a servant's heart. For more book promotion and platform help, listen to Novel Marketing in your favorite podcast app or at
1: novelmarketing.com. We've also been sharing wonders with you every time we have a podcast. And my wonder just was a real blessing for me. We live in the Pacific Northwest, as many of you know. Um, There are fires everywhere. And my valley seems to be the, the receptacle for all the smoke, for all the fires from California, Washington, and Idaho. Thank you very much. And so it has been months and months since we've seen anything but smoke, no blue sky, no sun, it's incredibly depressing. Well, a couple weekends ago, I stepped outside and there was blue sky and there was this big yellow thing in that blue (laughs) sky and there was no smoke in the air. The wind must have shifted directions or something. I was outside that entire day and the smoke never came back. God can do anything even for a weary and struggling child who has lung disease clear out the smoke for a day to give us a beautiful day to enjoy outside and remind us why we love this area so much. So I love that God is so aware of who we are and what we need that He will not just move mountains, but He'll move out smoke to take (laughs) care of us. Yes. And now, here's the the
0: show! show!
1: Welcome, listeners.
0: We are delighted that you are here with us in the deep. In our last episode, and we'll link to this in the show notes in case you didn't get to hear it yet, We began talking about habits, and we learned that habits are routines or behaviors that we repeat pretty much without thinking about them. We've taken a lot of our material from a book by James Clear called Atomic Habits, as well as a book by Charles Duhigg called The Power of Habit, and we'll be linking to both of those in the show notes. They're worth your time to read because they're full of lots of great information, much more, obviously, than we can cover in two podcasts.
1: We also talked about the habit loop that James Clear wrote about. It consists of cue, craving, response, and reward. The cue is the trigger that causes your brain to initiate a behavior. The craving provides motivation to act. The response is the actual action, the behavior. And the reward is the goal, the thing you get for doing the behavior. So we encourage you to go back and listen to that episode if you haven't yet. In today's show, we'll give more tips for developing a habit. Plus, we'll talk about some ways to say goodbye to habits that aren't serving you well. The reason why this is so important is that habits shape our lives.
0: James Clear writes in Atomic Habits, Researchers estimate that 40 to 50% of our actions on any given day are done out of habit. Now, that can be good, guys, because habits reduce cognitive load. Remember, we talked about decision fatigue, and, right. and so habits decrease the number of necessary decisions that we have to make, and all of that frees up more brain power for creative stuff. Yay, we're writers, so of course, we want all the creative energy
1: we can get. Our goal is to give you some tools to put new habits in place to help you live a life more in tune with God's vision and purpose for you and your writing. For example, maybe you want to start a habit of being more grateful by thanking God every day for something specific.
0: You know, I have a friend who did that during one of the worst times of her life, and it helped tremendously more than I can even say. Or maybe you want to start a habit of praying before you write each day. Maybe you want to do that, but somehow it's not a habit. So you want to make it a
1: habit or reading one new craft or marketing book each month, or meditating on one of God's qualities each night. 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us that when we're, quote, beholding the glory of the Lord, we're being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another, unquote. What a great image from one degree of glory to another. Or maybe you want to get into the habit of writing encouraging notes to others. Right. And now people will often ask, how long does it take to form a
0: habit? But James Clear argues that that's the wrong question. He says, and this is a quote, habit formation is the process by which a behavior becomes progressively more automatic through repetitions. So basically, guys, it's the repetitions that are actually changing your brain. So the right question to ask is not how long does it take, but instead, How many repetitions does it take? And just you know, to help you feel like you don't have to be a perfectionist here when you're trying to start a habit or form a new habit, studies have shown that missing one repetition is not the end of the world. So it's not like you need some string of 30 successful attempts in a row or something, and then you gotta start all over if you miss it. That's not the case. But when you do miss, you do have to get back on track as soon as possible because you don't wanna start repetitions for a new habit of skipping your habit.
1: (laughs) So if you want to create a new habit, the goal is to make sure that behavior gets repeated. And one of the best ways to do that is to make it easy. The harder it is, the more friction is created and the more resistance there is. You need to get rid of that and make it so that it's easy. One way to do that and make your habit easier is to have what you need ready in advance. If you want to start a habit of going to the gym to work out, for example, pack your workout bag ahead of time and have it ready to go. Choose a gym that's on the way to or from work or that's close to where you live, something that's easy to do. Or do you want to eat healthier? Make healthy meals on the weekend and have them ready to just warm up during the week when you're too tired to cook and think through what is and isn't easy. And also when you're tempted to just grab for that bag of chips and chow down. Right. Another way to make a habit easy is to use the two-minute
0: rule. The new habit should take less than two minutes to do. This is a a good tactic. Our biggest hurdle can often be just getting started. So the two-minute rule makes the habit so easy you're willing to do it. It's almost hard not to do it. So let's say you want to start a habit of daily writing, for example. You could consider starting with one sentence a day. Okay. That's almost ridiculous. I get that. You can do one sentence, any sentence, right? You might even feel silly not writing another sentence after the first one, but don't. Don't write that second sentence because that's not the habit you're working on. What you actually want to establish is the habit of putting your little behind in your writing chair
1: every single day. You're working on the habit of showing up for your writing time. So after a month or so, when you've repeated this action, putting your behind in the writing chair often enough that you go there almost without thinking about it, you can work on staying long enough to write two sentences or a paragraph. You know, that's just one possible way of making a writing habit easy to start. But you get the idea. The two-minute rule is probably the single best idea on how to get that new habit going. Another way to make a habit easier to start is to make it more satisfying. We like to repeat behaviors that feel good, that give us some sense of pleasure. In Charles Duhick's book, The
0: Power of Habit, he talks about how people rarely, and this is a little frightening, guys, how people rarely, if ever, brushed their teeth before a toothpaste called Pepsodent came along. Only about 7% of Americans even had toothpaste. But a decade later, 65% had toothpaste, and lots of that was Pepsodent. And that stuff was sold all over the world successfully. Now, they had a great ad campaign that helped create a habit of teeth brushing. But what nobody realized at the time was that part of the appeal of Pepsodent in particular was that they had added citric acid, mint oil, and a few other chemicals that were supposed to make it taste fresh. But those ingredients also acted like a mild irritant. And what that did was create this cool tingling sensation in people's mouths. And guess what? Everybody loved it. (laughs) They loved that sensation. It made them feel like their teeth were clean. So this tingling made the habit satisfying. And
1: that's what helped it become a craving that helped to drive that whole habit loop. So you know what? Within a few decades, the other toothpaste manufacturers figured this out too. And they started changing their own recipes to create that same sensation. So even today, most, if not all, toothpaste formulas are created to have that same effect. So when you want to form a new habit, look for ways you can make that habit immediately satisfying. Now, for some habits, this might be easy, but for others, it can be challenging because some habits you want to start and you know they'll benefit us in the long run, but it's hard to see a benefit right now. So take exercise every day. This has long-term benefits, but on your first day of exercise, you'll probably feel none of those benefits. You might even feel more tired than normal. So how can you give yourself an immediate reward to make this satisfying, which makes it easy?
0: Yeah, one of the things that I thought about with this was that there was this commercial, maybe you guys have seen it, for Apple Watches that showed this guy. He was kind of a couch potato-ish guy sitting on his couch and his watch reminded him to stand up. And then they fast forward through time and repetitions and he starts walking and running and they show this happening over and over. And with each repetition, this guy goes farther and passes his old self. And at the end, he's jumping happily into a pool or into the ocean, I think, and swimming. Now, what was that commercial really all about? It was creating a picture for a reward. It was like fast forwarding to those effects, you know, showing you what this could be like. They're helping you see what this long-term benefit is going to be all in the space of 30
1: seconds to help create a craving for that new self. But you have to do what works for you. I needed to stand more. I'm diabetic. I live a sedentary lifestyle, more or less. I have my butt in the chair editing or reading or creating or whatever, but I needed to stand more. So I got an app called Standland. Why did this give me an immediate reward? Because it buzzed and let me know every hour that I needed to stand and move around for a certain number of minutes. How did it do that? It has cool little characters, animals, and all kinds of stuff that come on in buzz and encourage you to get up and stand. And when I get up and stand and I complete the number of stands I need to in a day, which I've set the, the desired goal at 12 stands a day, I get new critters. I get new little <laughs> animals, and I get to watch them. And and if I haven't stood up as much as I need to, those little animals end up falling asleep, and they're sitting there and snoring. And so that reminds me that I need to take care. I'm doing it for my animal, for my little critter, not for me, because that to me is fun, and that's an immediate reward. And it's become such a habit now that I will find myself just having this innate sense that it's time to stand up. And as I'm starting to stand up, I get the buzz from my critter. So that was a very satisfying reward that worked and helped me to form that habit. If you want to keep things low tech, so put a big check mark on your calendar for every day you perform your behavior. All those marks help you see your progress. They offer proof that you're making a change that's important to you, and they provide a visual clue for the habit that you're working to create.
0: Right, that's a good way of habit tracking, and it helps keep you focused on the system. Remember that the idea is to slowly incorporate change into your life by focusing on systems that help you create the life you want to live. So basically, I think we can say habits can be wonderful tools for productivity and for a life lived in accordance with our values. But there is a flip side. Remember how we said 40 to 50% of our actions on any given day are done out of habit. Well, that means that you may not be aware of a significant amount of your behavior. So how do you know if your habits, these things
1: you're doing without thinking about it, how do you know if they're serving you or hindering you? Now, we said this in our last episode, and we're saying it again because it's important. We encourage you to devote time to carefully observing your behavior. Make a list of your habits, write them down so you can consider them impartially. When you do that, you can make choices about which habits and behaviors point you in the trajectory you want your life to go, and which don't. And the ones that don't, well, it's time to change them. For example, many writers struggle with doubts and negative self-talk. And as a side note here, we've seen that so often in the authors that we work with that we developed a going deeper workshop to help writers break that insidious habit. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes for that workshop. But James Clear has some useful guidance on changing habits as well for every idea he gives to help you start a habit, he applies the opposite advice to habits you want to change. So, for example, rather than making your cues obvious, one of the best things
0: you can do is eliminate your exposure to cues. So rather than, like, say, creating a time and place plan to help you do some behavior, figure out instead how you can avoid that time and place, especially if those times and places are cues for you, because you want, again, to avoid The queue. So let's say you drive by a coffee shop every day on your way to work and you actually want to stop getting coffee there because maybe you're trying to save money. Maybe you're trying to cut down on caffeine or whatever it is. Change your route to work. Even if it takes you longer, it's worth it not to drive by your temptation every day. Because changing your behavior isn't about staring at your temptation in the face and saying no, but often it can be just as simple as avoiding that temptation to begin with. James Clear points out that research shows those who we think are disciplined are really just better at structuring their lives in a way that does not require heroic willpower and self-control. That's a big piece of the puzzle when it comes to changing habits. Just Avoiding
1: cues. I got to tell you, knowing that willpower isn't the way to go when trying to change or avoid a habit is really good news to me (laughs) because I have really strong won't power. I don't have really strong willpower. (laughs) But not relying on willpower means that those cravings, which are engraved in our brains, can change without us having to make them change. Once they're set, we can't help but be affected by them, guys. And when you eliminate the cue that starts the craving, you don't have any reason to do the behavior. So one way to help change habits is to make your cues invisible. If you feel like you eat too much junk food, don't buy it. Send your spouse to the store so you're not even tempted. Or don't go down that aisle. Or put it on a high shelf in the pantry, way in the back, like over the refrigerator that's practically impossible to get. I have those. Why they put those cupboards up above the refrigerator right. just <laughs> bottles for my mind. <laughs> you have to have a stool to open those things. So you're intentionally doing your bad habit. Just make it invisible and get it to where you don't see it right? If you watch too much
0: TV, okay, I'm going to suggest something radical, get rid of the TV you know, or get rid of cable and internet. So you have fewer options or maybe put the TV in a room you don't go into very often. Or have you guys noticed that like every house has furniture, it just seems to all be facing the TV, you know, maybe rearrange your furniture or take the TV out of your bedroom if you find you're watching it too much late at night. Another thing that you wanna do when you're looking at what's going on with your cues is to check what's happening with your habit stacking. Maybe you find you come home from work, you change clothes, you grab a dinner, and you eat in front of the TV, but then you never actually get up until bedtime. Change your stack. Don't eat in front of the TV. Let's say you want to write at seven o'clock. Don't eat in front of the TV and then rely on your willpower to turn the TV off at seven so you can write. Don't do that. Or maybe if you like to eat in front of the TV because that's relaxation for you, put your TV outlet on a timer that shuts off at seven o'clock and use that as a new cue to stand up and go to your writing spot, which isn't in front of the TV.
1: I like that idea, having your TV shut off. Yeah. We talked earlier in this podcast about making the behavior of a habit easy if we wanted to encourage it. Well, if you want to discourage it, you make it hard. That's in essence what we'd be doing if we stuck all our junk food in the cabinet over the fridge. There's a lot of decision-making, friction in the brain involved in dragging a chair or a stepladder over to the fridge and digging that food out. So if you want to cut down the time you spend on social media, take the app off of whichever device you use the most. If you're always on Facebook on your phone, take it off and only allow it to be on your computer or download one of those apps that will limit or cut off access to websites you designate. You have to work to have technology help you. You have to decide to use technology to help you moderate technology. It becomes a commitment device and the choice you make in the present locks in your behavior in the future. Right. Use technology for your benefit
0: where you can, because in today's world, technology can really be against us. Have you guys noticed how binge watching has become so popular these days? One of the reasons is... Uh, companies like, say, Netflix, they make it easy to keep watching the next episode. Oh, gosh, just pops right up and starts for you. You don't have to do anything to make it go. You have to work to exercise willpower to actually turn it off. And that's hard. So aside from technology, you can also use people to help you change your habits. You can use what's called a habit contract, and that can make your habit less satisfying. Remember, that's the opposite of making it more satisfying, like pepsodent toothpaste. You want to try
1: to find it, find ways to make your habit less satisfying. So, how do you do that? Well, you create an unpleasant cost, basically a punishment. Because remember, our brain wants to repeat behaviors that are rewarded and avoid those that are punished. So Do you want to stop worrying or swearing or criticizing or whatever? Make a habit contract with a willing friend. You tell her you'll put a dollar in a jar every time you give in and actively worry or swear or criticize or whatever. And every week, your friend gets the money and goes out to a fun coffee place without you. You get (laughs) left behind or whatever else is painful to you you. Maybe she's a supporter of a football team you hate. And she gets to buy hats and mugs and all the kinds of stuff for her team. And you then have to wear them and (laughs) use them. Be creative and have fun with this. But you have to make it a punishment that is truly a punishment for you. Not something that's just kind of a wink and a nudge, but something that you really don't want to have to do. So, We don't want to leave you with the idea, though, that all habits are simple and fun to break. They're not. In fact, Charles Duhigg writes, quote, a habit cannot be eradicated. It must be replaced, unquote. He also stresses that there isn't any one surefire method that works for everyone to create behavior change. But in his book, he walks through what he calls the golden rule of habit change. Studies show that you can't completely
0: extinguish bad habits, but you can have a great deal of success if you keep the old cues, keep the old rewards, but substitute a different behavior. That's basically the rule. And it makes sense because it's the behavior that you're trying to change. And this is a good method because some cues you actually can't avoid. So for this to work, You have to first recognize what your cues are, what the reward is, and most important, you have to be sure what your craving is. James Clear writes that a craving is just a manifestation of a deeper underlying motive. It is the desire to change your internal state. So, the behaviors we have attached to satisfy our cravings, they're not necessarily the best way to achieve that change in our internal state. The cues and the rewards, they're not necessarily bad, right? But it's the behavior we choose after the cue to get that reward that can be the problem. So, for example, somebody might feel anxious and they crave relaxation. Okay, that's not a problem, right? But if the behavior of getting drunk sprung up to get that reward, well, that is a problem. Relief from anxiety can be found in lots of other ways that don't involve alcohol. So that's the behavior that could be modified, the getting drunk part. You can have the cue of anxiety and the desire for a relaxed state, and
1: that gives you the motivation to act, but you achieve that reward with different behavior. Charles Duhigg gives a good example of how behavior can be modified through habit reversal training that's founded on the golden rule of habit change. There was a woman who wanted to stop biting her fingernails. Her habit was so bad that her fingertips were often covered with scabs. Not a good thing. So her psychologist, by questioning her, helped her uncover what the cue was for this habit. She felt tension in her fingertips. When she felt that, she chewed her fingernails. Now, awareness of the cues is the first step in modifying a habit. So many of us do our habits, well, out of habit. So we may be completely aware of what our cues are, but it's crucial to identify them. For example, one of the reasons Alcoholics Anonymous is so effective is that it forces members to identify all of their cues. So the therapist for the woman biting her fingernails sent
0: her home with a note card and told her to put a check mark on it every time she experienced the cue of that tension in her fingers. This helped her to become even more aware of her cues. But you also have to understand the reward. Through her therapist's questions, the woman discovered that she was often bored when she felt the tension in her fingers. And after she bit her fingernails, it was better. And it turned out
1: that what she was craving was just this physical stimulation. So the therapist moved to the next step and gave her what's called a competing response. When the woman felt the cue in her fingers, she was to put her hands in her pockets or pin them under her legs or grab a hold of something like a pencil, anything that would make her unable to bite her nails. After that, she had to immediately find some sort of quick physical simulation like knocking on a tabletop or rubbing her arm. So she was achieving the same reward of physical stimulation with the same cues triggering it, but she was changing the behavior, the response or routine. The end result was that the undesirable behavior was successfully modified to something acceptable. So, to sum
0: all this up, you recognize your cues, you identify your craving and your rewards, and you introduce a competing behavior that can achieve the same reward. And we cannot stress this enough. You have to go deep to accurately identify your craving. For example, our alcoholic isn't craving being inebriated. That person is craving something that being inebriated provides, typically anyway. And maybe that's relaxation or numbness or acceptance within a pair group or the ability to forget something terrible, whatever it is. So it's vital that you dig deep into your own motivation say maybe you write fiction pretend you're a character in one of your novels and don't be satisfied with the superficial answer like maybe you want to stop snacking at work you need to understand why you're snacking ask yourself what you're really after because are you truly hungry or maybe you're just bored and you need a break or maybe you're tired and you're just looking for something to wake you up. There's one other important aspect of successful behavior change that we need to cover, and that is the belief that change is possible. You have to believe it. Charles Duhigg quotes J. Scott Tonnegan, and that's a, he's a researcher from the University of Toronto, and this guy says, I wouldn't have said this a year ago. That's how fast our understanding is changing, but belief seems critical. And, you know, one of the things that helps boost
1: belief is the power of others believing. Groups can help foster belief. I mean, why do you think the Bible talks so often about not forsaking the gathering together of believers? It's because we gain strength and we gain encouragement, and that fellowship alone helps us to continue in the patterns and behavior that we want to follow. So Duhigg points out that belief is a vital component in Alcoholics Anonymous. He quotes a senior scientist at the Alcohol Research Group who says, quote, at some point, people in AA look around the room and think, if it worked for that guy, I guess it can work for me. There There's something really powerful about groups and shared experiences. People might be skeptical about their ability to change if they're by themselves, but a group will convince them to suspend belief. A community creates belief, unquote. So, hey, one of the best things you can do when trying to change a habit is find other like-minded people who can support you and help foster your belief. But let's not forget the most powerful belief, the belief that with God, all things are possible.
0: Yeah, some of you may know that Bill Wilson, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, attributed his ability to overcome alcohol to God. And many other people interviewed by researchers also point to God as the reason they don't relapse even in the midst of difficult times. Of course, you know, researchers wanted to discount this. You can't really test God in a hypothesis and, you know, that makes them uncomfortable. But God kept coming up over and over in the interviews, so much so that the researchers could not discount it. Now, they're solution was to neutralize the notion of belief into a generic statement that belief is necessary. And for them, they said, you know, any belief, you know, either in themselves or in a higher power, that'll do. And, you know, I do think we all need belief. We need belief and hope. But we as Christians understand that the highest power in all existence is God, the creator of all things. And he is not bound by our understanding, our limitations, our beliefs, or our habits. The psalmist who wrote Psalm 139, and in particular, verses 13 through 16, (laughs) says this about God. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb.
1: How encouraging is that in the face of realizing that we've developed behaviors we want to change, behaviors that are working against us, or that there are new behaviors we want to set up, behaviors that will benefit us and help us to be more effective at the task that God has given us to write. He knows everything about us from before we were created. So first and foremost, when you start thinking about all this, take it to God. Ask Him to reveal to you the behaviors that you need to start and the behaviors that you need to stop. Ask him to show you which habits are helping you and which are working against you. You may be surprised at what he reveals to you, but if you take it to him, if you ask him, he will do what you're asking him to do. Jeremiah 32, 27 says, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? He can show you your habits. He can show you how to change them. Job 42.2 says, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. God knows what works best for you. God knows which habits are working against you and hindering you. Isaiah 46, 9b through 10 says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Guys. We serve an amazing God and we serve a God who wants us to do and to act and believe in what's best for us and in what will make us into a better reflection of him to the world. All of this stuff about habits and changing habits, it's all about doing what makes you work best as God created you and then enabling you to do the tasks that he's given you. So let's take it to him and then step forward. Do these things that we have brought you and just watch and see what God does. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. You can find previous episodes and more resources at writefromthedeep.com. And I bet you know someone who needs this podcast. So please share it with them. So until next time, embrace the deep. Your writing and your life will never be the same.